What's better than listening to the 430 movie in the car or at home? Seeing it recorded in front of a live audience. Join us this year at WonderCon, where your favorite 430 movie hosts will record Walt Disney Week live in Anaheim, only at WonderCon. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, I hope you'll come see me at Emerald City Comic Con on Thursday, March 14th, as I discuss 50 years of Star Trek with some incredible stories, rare photography, and more. Join me as I boldly go. That's a bad pun. Tickets are available through the ECC website and at Read Pop. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Miller. And with me is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. Hello. Uh, and today we welcome a great, great man, an excellent filmmaker, Mr. Fred Decker. Hello, Thank Fred. Thank you. Uh, you Thank might you. know Fred for uh, his first two films, Night of the Creeps and The Monster Squad. And most recently, he and his buddy Shane Black have reteamed for The Predator. But we are here today to talk about Fred's script for Godzilla, which uh, I think it's nice to kind of start out, contextualize things. You were super young, I think, when this started going initially. Was this before Night of the Creeps? Oh, yeah. It was before. It was about three years before. Uh, First of all, I just want to clarify that the title of the movie, per Steve Miner, the director, was... Godzilla, King of the Monsters. In 3D. In 3D, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about like uh, your background leading up to this project, film school, all that jazz. Well, I didn't get into film school. I was a film nerd from you know the age of about 10 and loved uh, anything with a monster in it. And um, I got serious about filmmaking when I was 14 or 15 in high school. And uh, when it, ca- it came time to... Um, try and get into colleges. You know, the best film schools at that time, if it wasn't uh, on the East Coast, was USC or UCLA. So I um, uh, tried to get into both of those schools, and the universities took me, but the film schools wouldn't, which is kind of silly anyway, because you don't really make films until your uh, junior year, I think, anyway. But um, I went to UCLA and was an English major and just started writing my scripts and trying to break in as a as a writer to become a director following, you know, Paul Schrader and Francis Coppola and guys like that, and Preston Sturgis. So um, uh, I wrote a terrible, terrible script about space truckers. This is probably <laughs> 1980-ish, 70, no, probably 79. And uh, it was very terrible, and I threw it, uh, threw it in a drawer. Nobody ever saw it. And then about a year later, I wrote... Um, Another screenplay about a guy whose all of his wishes come true. And uh, it was awful, and I threw that in a drawer. <laughs> and then I wrote a private eye spoof, My Gun is Hard, starring Mike Rock, Private Eye. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was better than the other two, but it still sucked. So I threw that in the drawer. And then my fourth script, actually, I thought maybe this is worth showing to somebody. And at that point, my buddy Ed Solomon, who uh, you know from Men in Black and... Now you see me and levity and a whole bunch of other stuff. He uh, he had start he had broken in. He was writing for Laverne and Shirley, and uh, I said, "Will you help me get an agent with this?" So I got an agent with this script. It was a time travel thriller, and uh, 
uh, signed with ICM, and that was the beginning of my career. And one of the first phone calls that my agent got was from Steve Miner, who really liked the time travel script. And he asked me to come see him and explained that he had the rights to, from Toho to Godzilla. What year was this, roughly? 83. Okay, so Steve had done Friday the 13th. Two and three. And three, and he wanted to do Godzilla in 3D, yeah. And if you think about it, if you've read the script, I I have to be honest, I haven't read the script in a long time, so my memory is going to be pretty fuzzy. But but Steve, uh, you know, had made the Friday 13th movies, and the third one, the 3D one, I think was probably two million bucks. And so even the idea of attempting a Godzilla movie... uh, for him was a huge step forward. So that's where we began. And I'm, I'm sure he had his pick of the litter. He could have gotten Richard Matheson or Carl Gottlieb or anybody else that you would expect. And instead he hired me and I was 20, 22, I think. Do you have any sense of what it was about you that clicked for him? My boundless enthusiasm. Yeah, <laughs> your youth. <laughs> uh, how I, old were you? 20, I think I was 22. But, but, but I think it really was enthusiasm, uh, you know, it was my first job, so I was eager and excited, and, uh, you know, I wasn't uh, jaded at all. It was like, oh, cool. And uh, and so I brought a lot to the table. I think it should be this. You know, I think there's an Irwin Allen aspect to this. Let's have a lot of different characters and, you know, the architect and the fireman and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, um, and I was uh, always heavily influenced by by James Bond and the, and the spy genre, so I wanted to throw that in. And so I, I basically tried to come up with a story that would be interesting even if Godzilla didn't show up. That was kind of my pitch. Um, and what was your general fan relationship with Godzilla as a property? I mean, I, I assume you saw the movies whether or not you liked them just because they— That's a perfect yeah. way to put it because yeah. I, I did see them all and I really didn't like them. <laughs> Mostly not because, uh, not, not because of the quality of the movies so much as I was— I was a Harryhausen guy. You know how there's people who like Crest and there's people who like Colgate and there's people who like the Brady Bunch and there's people who like the Partridge family? To me, it's guys in suits or stop motion. And at that time, I was hugely enamored of Jason the Argonauts and the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and the Valley of Guanji. And so to me, stop motion was the way to create uh, a giant monster. Uh, so the, I, I took the Godzillas with a kind of a grain of salt. And I'm also trying to think general context uh, if they'd even tried to make like an American Godzilla. Because obviously the very, for I guess anyone listening who doesn't know, the original Godzilla movie from 1950 or whatever, they did an American like re-edit of it where they inserted Raymond Burr Mm -hmm. into it. But I don't don't know if they ever really tried to do an American one. I think Steve's was the first legitimate attempt to do that. I do too. From what I found at the library, it was it started, yeah, with with this one because it's been like seventy five was Terra of Mecha Godzilla, and that was the last one up to this point. You know, it just was a Japanese movie. Yes, yes. Yeah. it's just interesting that nobody had that idea, even just from like yeah. a financial perspective. They're like, oh, these these movies get released in America, they make money. Mm-hmm. Here's but... the thing, though, Josh. This was <laughs> this was PN. This was uh, 1983 PN, pre-nerd. Yeah. <laughs> now there were nerds out there. Yeah. But they didn't rule the world like they do They're now. They're hidden basements. Yeah, now it's like you find the stupidest fucking thing you can find. We gotta reboot that! Yeah. Because some nerd in Milwaukee loves it. Mm-hmm. This was way before that, so it was a gamble. 
I think. Um, and yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's interesting that Steve took this upon himself that he got the rights himself to do it. Yeah, was yeah, no, especially like coming off of just such low budget horror films to go into such a big budget mm-hmm. Godzilla from Jason to Godzilla is a pretty big leap too. Yeah, you know. Um, and I guess also. Uh, Make sure anyone listening understands, because now, as you know, nerds kind of rule the world. Mm-hmm. Horror movies are cool and make hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes. But I would imagine that in 1983, even though uh, the Jason movies made a lot of money for Paramount, it was still kind of ghettoized. Like you weren't thought of as a cool hit filmmaker just because. Oh, no, they yeah. were very much ghettoized. And, and again, those movies weren't big budget at all. Mm-hmm. Occasionally they would throw money at, I mean, after Star Wars, they would throw money at a genre movie or a space alien movie like Alien or Aliens, um, but or Predator for that matter. But by and large, they were always considered kind of grindhouse. And so Steve was hiring you himself? Yep. Like he was personally, this was his money I wrote at the, this point. I wrote the script for Stephen C. Minor Productions Incorporated. And he had a wonderful little office down in Santa Monica, and uh, it was a wonderful first foray into screenwriting. It was it was really um, I was very gratified to have that opportunity. And what was the experience? Would you drive to his office to work, or did yep. you work at home? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we we had a lot of lunches, sort of beating out the story. He took a story credit because he had this idea that uh, it would be interesting for uh, a kid uh, to not befriend Godzilla, but be sort of the the conscience and the heart of the audience in terms of treating the the monster as more than just this force of nature. So we've in that way deviated from the initial premise of Godzilla, which was a metaphor for the atomic bomb. Um, ours was much more kind of, in fact, we actually screened E.T. at Universal. He said, we have to watch E.T. again just to keep our eye on the ball. And I went, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure what ball that is, but I think... And then it's funny because I, uh, uh, years later, I met with um, Dino De Laurentiis about doing the sequel to King Kong, which they ended up making with, I think, Linda Hamilton. And, and Dino's take on it was, Kong is E.T. <laughs> so I think after E.T., anything that wasn't human in a yeah. genre film had to be either a slasher or E.T. Um, and I think you said before we started recording, you don't quite remember the movie that well. I mean, this was... The Over script. 30 yeah, years I, ago. I, t- I, I like to look forward and not back. So, yeah. uh, uh, but I remember the broad brushstrokes and the characters, sort of. Because um, mm-hmm. I was going to ask you to explain it if you didn't want to, Steve or I probably could, because we just read the script. Oh, okay. Um, but I'm curious how much actually what you remember about it. Uh, as I say, I remember I wanted a spy element. I wanted to keep um, Steve's notion of a of a boy, of a young boy as a character. And so I think the first decision was, okay, well, the spy is going to be the father of the kid. And the kid doesn't know that his father's a spy. Um, And then I had to start peopling it with other uh, characters who would be knowledgeable about the the events that would occur. So um, there was a paleontologist who was a kind of a wisecracking sort of, you know, Jeff Goldblum template. Um, We had a, a... the feisty Hawksian news reporter, I believe, who mm-hmm. was kind of a Demi Moore prototype at that time. And uh, and then the usual, you know, group of useless military guys who were yeah. going to do nothing but get in the way and cause more problems than we already have. Um, and then the, the main plot point, the main plot twist to completely give it away, um, was an idea that I had that I 
subsequently realized was a ripoff of a movie called Gorgo, which was a <laughs> which was an English Godzilla ripoff. Where he's kind of like a weird turtle looking. Well, no, 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 no. It's, he's actually a big lizard. Gorgo is actually okay. a big lizard. But but the central premise uh, of, that we went for is to is to show him. We followed the Jaws template. I mean, everybody knows the story of the shark not working, and that makes the movie better because we don't see it. We just suspect it's there. So we did that on a massive scale for the first act of the movie. We suggest Godzilla's out there, but we don't actually show him. And then the end of the first act, uh, our, our spy guy gets a call from the State Department or from the feds or whoever, you know, you got to go to Mexico. And he goes to Mexico and, of course, brings the kid, and there's this giant dead reptilian creature the size of, you know, a, 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 an apartment building on the beach in Baja. And and my idea was it's a big twist. Like the audience is going to go, that's, that's Godzilla? He's, de- he's <laughs> dead at the end of the first act? Short movie. <laughs> um, but what we find out, in fact, is that it's the progeny of Godzilla and that the real dude is much, much, much bigger. Um, so that that sort of ushers our way into the rest of the movie where Godzilla comes looking for the baby Godzilla. Um, and and I guess I in my primitive screenwriting mind, that was a thematic connection to our our spy and the kid. Because um, the kid's parents are separated. Yes, so. yes, exactly. So and God's- the mom is dating one of the other scientists so there's like mm, kind of a that. love triangle going oh, I don't on remember they that all have to work yeah. on it together it's a lot of rich characters and character development. like you said the characters were really strong in the script which was surprising you. you know it was like not i mean i'm just saying for like not like for you, you, you for yeah you, you cared movie. for the characters <laughs> the kid character was also like a magician and well i was a huge i was a magic yeah. buff when i was a kid and loved houdini and so i put i gave that to him um but yeah so act three is essentially Godzilla coming to look for the for the baby who's dead and is being stored at the Presidio, which at that time was the military complex uh, that George Lucas now ha- uh, has his company, but um, which is kind of interesting in the context of this movie. Um, so Godzilla comes looking for the baby, finds that it's dead, and is really not happy about that, and that ushers in at that time, I would think pretty much as expensive as a movie could possibly be, yes. which is, which is, by the way, one of the reasons it was never made. Which, I, which well, I was going to say that moment, though, uh, I was surprised when I got there because I kept thinking like, well, this is clearly the structure of this movie is Godzilla is looking for its baby, mm-hmm. who we all know is dead. So I'm like, oh, the baby's going to turn out like not to be dead or something. And then there's kind of a very upsetting scene of Godzilla getting there and realizing his kid's dead and just like basically going insane. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that yeah. would, I feel like that as a kid that would, because I'll admit this because I was young enough that I don't have to be embarrassed. Uh, the movie King Kong Lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's the one I was talking me, to. Made me cry when you know why? the mom Because Kong is E.T. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, there's a scene where the baby's like looking at the mom and the mom's dying. And you made me cry when I was a kid. So this scene would have made me cry and then would have terrified me once Godzilla goes from being sad to basically like, I'm going to fuck up this entire civilization now. Well, one thing I noticed in seeing all of the Toho films is that the monsters, whether it was Godzilla or Ghidra or Rodan or whoever it was, tended to sort of just show up and knock over a bunch of of miniature buildings. Yeah, they were, it was like they were just kind of going for a stroll and stuff was in their way. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, you know what? He, he's got to be pissed because that's going to up the ante. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's a it's a powerful scene when he finds his when he finds his dead mm-hmm. kid. It's really sad, and you actually feel for him. And what I was also thinking was like. Growing, they made a Godzilla cartoon in like '78, and they gave the Godzilla's son a name, Godzuki. And that's all I was thinking about. Wow, you killed Godzuki <laughs> in the first. <laughs> yeah. Like you were gonna, like so many kids would probably been so upset by that. But it was a very powerful scene, and you can't help but to feel like what he's doing to San Francisco. And the third act is just him just destroying it's San Francisco. Out, yeah. Well, yeah. I, well, I thought it was interesting. I was just gonna read a quote because uh, in the '90s. Uh, uh, Elliot and Rocio wrote a Godzilla script yes. that kind of eventually mutated into the 98 Godzilla. Um, and one of the key differences about it, though, is I'll just read a quote from Terry Rocio from his uh, excellent website. Um, he said, we realized that Godzilla was the hero. And even if people were afraid of him in the beginning, they wanted to root for him in the end. And that was why in their script, they did kind of the classic thing where there's another giant monster that shows up. They fight. Um, but I kind of like what you did with it, which was more of just like, well, no, it's still just the humans versus Godzilla, but like it's personal. Mm-hmm. It's not just him abstractly showing up and right. representing our powerlessness against the atomic bomb. Well, what's interesting to me that you say that is that it, it uh, I, I believe that the creative process is, is largely uh, unconscious, that we do kind of what our gut tells us to do and don't think about it that much. So it wasn't like I was trying to somehow... Uh, create some paradigm. I just have always felt that the most interesting monsters, whether it's Frankenstein's monster or the Wolfman or, or, or even Dracula, they're all these pitiable creatures who don't want to really be... I mean, the Wolfman doesn't want to be Wolfman. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a disease. It's like a drug addiction. Uh, Dracula can't die. So he's pissed. Frankenstein never wanted to be born. So it's not a, it's not about humanizing them to do kind of what I think Terry wants to do, which is to make them the heroes. It's giving them enough humanization that we can relate to them and understand them as living real creatures and not just an, an effects, uh, uh, an, an excuse to do special effects. So I always wanted to give Godzilla a, a, an emotional uh, arc, but but let's not get carried away. He's a, he's a big fucking monster and needs to die. <laughs> yeah. And make him as scary mm-hmm. as possible. I think the Frankenstein comparison is pretty apt. Because especially at the end of your script, once he's just going insane. I also like that you held back for how long until he starts breathing fire. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's part of me that, you know, kind of wanted him to win, but you know he can't. Uh much like Frankenstein. There's right. part of you uh, that wants Frankenstein to get away when he's in the windmill because you feel bad. Yeah. He, he didn't ask for any of this. Godzilla was sleeping. We woke him up with a nuke at the beginning. But, but, yes, exactly. But by the way, <laughs> you know, you guys, I think we're, we're all sort of cut from the same cloth and we spent time in front of the TV in our jammies watching these movies when we were very young. And I think there's an element of being a child and that wide-eyed wonder that illuminates any monster movie. So to not have that in there, to just take a sort of Michael Mann approach to a Godzilla movie, I think would be a big mistake, although I'd be the first in line. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, too, um, uh, now just read two of your scripts when prepped for our other episode where we'll talk about Johnny Quest. Um, I want to talk a little bit, even though this is more of just a writing process style. Um, Both of these scripts open really interestingly. I'm just going to read the first. This is its own page. Okay. So it's very dramatic to see. Uh, it's kind of centered in the center of the page. It just says, Black screen. A single flute plays a simple, unresolved melody. Fade in blue title over black. In quotes. Listening through mist. 
distant glow of dragon's cries, a warrior waits. <laughs> and I'm like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a haiku. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I'm just, I guess this was leading to the question of just how, especially at that age, what was kind of your approach to how you formed the screenplays and what your style was, even of what we see on the page that the audience is never actually going to see because they're going to see it as the movie. Well, as we speak today, we're about a month out from the death of William Goldman, who was my hero. And that's why I remember that he died. I think he did about a month ago, yeah. maybe five weeks. Um, the biggest influence on me as a writer... Was Adventures in the Screen Trade? No. Or? No? No, it was, the, it was the novel Magic, which I found at the library, at Powell Library at UCLA. And because I was a magic buff as a kid, and I saw that it was a thriller, I said, ooh, i got to read this. Read it that night, and he's been my favorite writer ever since. So what I learned from Goldman when you read his actual screenplays is that all this interior, exterior, intercut, all that crap is an He just it. writes cut two, doesn't that, he? That's as, that's as close as he gets to technical bullshit. It's really like reading a novel, but it's done in this kind of staccato form, a little like uh, Walter Hill used to do as well. Um, but but uh, Goldman was my was my hero, so I was always trying to emulate him. So the idea of doing a title page where it's like, title page, smash, and then you have this thing, it's it's a, it's all about attention grabbing, mm-hmm. and then you can tell the story. If you start anytime I open a script and it says fade in, exterior, you know, pastoral landscape. The wind zethers through the willows, and there's a big chunk of thing. I just toss it in the garbage. <laughs> I, do <laughs> yeah. not, I do not have time for this. Grab no. me and then tell me a story. Don't describe the frickin' wind. Well, it's, just, it's also just the way you describe your characters. It's like uh, there's a character, Peter Daxton, and you describe him. He's like 40-ish, rugged-looking with short, dark hair and a black eye patch over one eye. He wears a leather flight jacket over a blue wetsuit and a cigarette hangs from the side of his mouth as though he were bo- it, he were born with it there. And I just <laughs> love that, man. Like whenever you get into a character, I can't wait to see how you describe him because mm, immediately I know I now know like this guy's a badass and he is throughout the script, you know. <laughs> when was Escape from New York? 81? Yeah, probably. 81 or 2. Oh. No, cuz 82 is the thing so it must have been so for me you know there's Largo and Thunderball has an eye patch Snake Plissken has an eye patch and every every time you see a movie with a guy with an eye patch it's going to be cool yeah (laughs) (laughs) um well actually to that end as as far as like um because I know Night of the Creeps for those who are fans of it a famous element of it is that all of the character names are homages to horror directors that influenced you and I was just kind of a little curious about this script because this predates Night of the Creeps, but there's like a character who's named Atkins. Mm. There's a character named Woodruff, which mm. almost seems like they're references to your two other movies. I think that's really fascinating, and I have to, I can tell you this, I had, that's completely not something I planned at all. Yeah. It's just random. That's... You, were, you were basically calling out people you were going to cast. I was going to work next... with in my next two movies. Yeah. Interesting. Psychic. Um, one thing I would talk about is interesting that you said it was Steve Miner's idea to put the kid in because uh, in our, our other episode, we're going to talk to you about Johnny Quest. And I saw actually a lot of parallels oh, yeah. between how you treated this kid going oh, yeah. off on this crazy adventure. And he's kind of got this interesting relationship with his like dad. Mm-hmm. And this is dad's not the scientist, but it's the same kind of thing mm-hmm. going off. He's got a pet iguana here instead of a pet dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know that because you're a big Johnny Quest fan, were these 
elements that were rattling around in your mind when you were working on this script. No question about it, but I hadn't thought about it until just now that that actually turned up in the script. That's funny. That's pretty cool. And to the 3D part of it, I guess, let, let, so you wrote the script, and now let's kind of move in to the next phase. And again, it's kind of fascinating that you were going to do this, like, $40 million. Back then, that was insanely expensive. That was um, Heaven's Gate 1941 movie. Yeah. Uh, money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was going to be 3D, which I'm sure complicates how you do all the special effects. I'm just kind of curious what your conversations with Steve were like, kind of looking ahead to how you were actually going to put this movie together. Well, once I turned the script in, I just I sort of went home and hid in my room and waited for the phone to ring <laughs> to, to tell me I was fired, which didn't happen. So I was really elated. He really liked it. He really thought we were on to something. And we went through a process that's really my uh, m- most treasured memories of, the, of this particular project was Steve had great taste in um, graphic designers, and he hired a wonderful artist named William Stout. Who was the production designer for Conan. Who, movie, uh, I think. He worked on yeah. Conan. He wasn't the production designer, but oh. he, did, he did designs. He, he designed Return of the Living Dead, yeah. and he designed Masters of the Universe. Yeah. Um, great, great artist uh, and a great production designer. And uh, he hired him to come in, and, and, and the first thing that Bill did was render these very large uh, drawings of how he saw Godzilla and standing on Alcatraz and fighting jets. And, and that was Steve's way to show Toho and then whoever our American financiers would be, here's what the movie's going to be. And it was a, really a master touch on Steve's part. Um, and then we started storyboarding the movie and I got the opportunity to meet um, a wonderful artist who's not with us anymore, Dave Stevens, who created The Rocketeer. And Dave was just doing storyboards and, and we became friends and at some point, my love of Johnny Quest came up, and he goes, do you want to meet Doug Wildey? <laughs> I said, what? He goes, he's my friend. If you know the Rocketeer, there's uh, PV, the old guy who is Cliff's kind of mentor. Mm-hmm. That's Doug Wildey. He literally drew his friend Doug Wildey. Yeah. So I got to have dinner with the creator of Johnny Quest because well, of Dave, cool. <laughs> because of Dave Stevens, because of Bill Stout, because of Steve Miner. So oh. that for me was wonderful. But while I was doing that and having fun and meeting my heroes, Steve was trying to get the money to make the movie. And I think very early on it became clear that nobody was going to give him $40 million to do coming off of a two, $3 million movie. Um, so we went, he sort of went hat in hand to a lot of producers, you know, larger producers with, with uh, studio affiliations and big studios, Warners and Fox. We were alive at 20th Century Fox for quite some time. But I think at the end of the day, it was just a combination of the weird movie and it's in 3D and the director has only made a couple of slasher movies and it's really expensive. I think that's what killed it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a shame, too, because I read William Stout said that according to Steve, if uh, this Godzilla was a hit, he would have been able to remake Rodan, which probably would have started just like our own the U.S. Godzilla universe. You know? Well, what's funny is that that's all happening right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just all these... took 30-some years. <laughs> it just took 30-some um, well, I have a question. What, so, like, working with William Stout, were you guys trying not to change the Godzilla, the, change the design of Godzilla too much? Were you just trying to keep it? Yeah, I think both Steve and Bill were were enamored of the original in a way, but in different ways than, than say, I was, because I don't, I'm not an... Uh, 
you know, a anthropologist or a biologist. I just, you know, I think, ooh, that looks cool. But, but, but Bill in particular is a, studies animals, and he's done books, illustrated books about dinosaurs. So he's looking at the at the uh, at the plate platelets on, on on his spine and and the shape of his legs and uh, you know and that was the first thing he did he said if he's going to run if he's going to run and he's going to be agile he needs to be more muscular so he took the Godzilla we know yeah who has kind of big dumpy legs he's a, he's a garbage can <laughs> yeah. so he took that and he made it more uh more agile and more muscular and but but the spirit of it was there and the spinal plates were almost exact, and and but he also gave him a fierceness. If you look at those drawings, uh, I'd love for you to see them. They're, they're online, I think. Yeah, they're like, pretty yeah. easy to find, and we'll maybe post them if we can somewhere yeah, he's, too. He's a fearsome-looking creature, but he's not terrifying. He's clearly an animal, mm-hmm. and I think that's really what the genius of Bill was, of, of hiring Bill, was that he was a guy who knew how to draw an animal and to create that, and that's really what it was. And wasn't Rick Baker supposed to build like a giant? Practical head. I think I read that. I yeah. heard that story too, but I never met. I never met Rick. Um, there was another guy uh, named Steve Zerkus who built us a, a maquette of Godzilla. It was probably about two, two feet, two and a half feet tall. That was pretty interesting. And was cool. he going to do the stop motion um, animation? I believe Randy Cook was going to do the stop motion. Yeah. I also read that they said that was a problem with the 3D was doing stop motion with 3D because the cameras were so big. I, I, uh, I read like it was a hurdle, like trying to figure out how to shoot stop motion in 3D at the time. Uh, yeah. I, I just as a film nerd myself, I, I think probably the problem wasn't so much shooting the shooting the the figures with two cameras, which is what 3D is essentially. Or a split one cam, split lens one camera, because you have to ha- be looking at it from two eye perspectives, the left and right. The problem isn't the animation; the problem is the background. Because mm-hmm. if you're doing it blue screen, then you have to have a 3D image that's blue screen and know that it's going to dovetail with with the creature. So I think there was R and D that had never been done, literally never been done before. So that was definitely an obstacle. And then, uh, I mean, just I imagine it's been interesting, this was so long ago now, that they have ended up doing now several different American Godzilla movies. Um, have you seen any of them? Like, is it something you can kind of stayed interested just to see what other people do with it? Not really. And I don't mean that in any disparaging way. Yeah. Um, but I'll, my tastes have changed quite a bit. And there's, you know, I'll, I'll be at a convention and somebody will come up to me, hey, have you seen the, what do you think of the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street? And I'll go, why would I see the remake? <laughs> <laughs> so, but I will say this, the 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 trailer for Gareth's, for the first Godzilla, the more recent Godzilla, was one of the best trailers I've ever seen. It was cool. I was so thrilled. And the, the, and the movie, not so much. But... Uh, you know, I'm, there's a part of me, the little kid in me, that wants to see one of these movies and just be thrilled. Um, well, that was like, the thing that's great about your tone, and that I, the like, Devlin and Emmerich one seemed to kind of keep in the same basic idea that it should be fun. Um, whereas the new ones, I guess I don't know what the newest one will be like. I imagine it'll be a little bit more fun than the Gareth one, just because uh, it's the guy who did Trick or Treat and right. Krampus. <laughs> um, right. But Michael. I mean, another thing I liked about yours is how 80s it was that they're fighting Russians in it. It's just such a perfect oh, yeah. little time a, capsule. Oh, I forgot time about that. Written. We had Russian yeah. spy bad guys. He had a wrist guys. blade, too, which I thought was pretty cool. That's right out of Marathon, man. 
And they're fighting over <laughs> missiles. There's yeah, nuclear there's... submarines. It's great. Yeah, I just I wanted to do I wanted to do a spy fighting a Soviet agent with a wrist blade on a in on an open helicopter. And then if they if if he can kill the guy and he falls out and Godzilla catches him in his mouth, even better. <laughs> well, and then even better after that, he he blows uh, the. Uh... Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> He, incinerate, he incinerates the the villain in his hand, which oh, is right. awesome. And that's the first time you see him breathe because right. uh, he's the bad guy. Because mm-hmm. Godzilla oh. knows intuitively a, that this is the bad guy. Yeah, he it's knows a, the kid's good. It, and exactly, it's, it's, a, it's a great sequence. And there's, a, there's another great sequence in the film that was really eerie. It's just these two guys on a sailboat, and then just out of nowhere, Godzilla head kind of rises and just swallows, <laughs> like yawns and swallows the sailboat whole and goes back under the water at night. I just love that sequence. Well, I like the script. sequence too. Is speaking of using Jaws as kind of a model, I thought there was a great kind of nod to Jaws scene where a huge like commercial fishing boat Mm -hmm. something gets caught in their net and like the scene in Jaws (laughs) the boat starts getting pulled by it and everyone's trying to like hack the net off before they get pulled down that's a great scene and is I love that and then there's another one like by the like like the scene in Jaws when the kid's playing and you see his fin in the background you have something like that too on a beachside road where these three kids are playing a game with each other keep away and in the way distance Godzilla head rises from the water looks around and then submerges again and we don't see him for a little while after that but just the fact you're planting it there that he's so that's another question like what made you think of like doing this in San Francisco versus like any other city in the U.S.? Main reason is I was born in San Francisco. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Simple and, enough. And grew up across the bridge in Marin County. So the iconography of that city was something that was with me from a very, very early age. Gotcha. And how, like, how high profile was just the fact that anybody was working on this movie? Like, you can find uh, stuff about it, people talking about it now, just from, you know, conventions and whatnot. But how was this, like, reported in the trades? Did this help you? I guess I'm asking, did this help at all to have worked on this moving forward for you? It didn't hurt, let's put it that way, because I was trying to set up my my time travel movie, and uh, Fox actually optioned it pretty early on. So it's always a nice thing when when you're trying to sell something, and they go, oh, by the way, he's got this, you know, this other thing that he's doing at a, at a big studio. You know, you know this right now. You're yeah. going, you're going through this right now. Yes. <laughs> With uh, did the did the follow up movie Godzilla 1985 hurt at all? Like, hurt this production? I mean, besides it being too expensive, because that came out pretty fast after this. It seemed like you guys working on this inspired Toho to be like, hey, maybe we should make I've another Godzilla be- movie. I, I've always believed that that's the yeah. case. Um, and sadly, I think we were probably dead by the time that movie came out. Well, because it's weird because, like, your film opens with the eye, badass eye patch guy going to check out this Russian submarine. And then in Godzilla 1985, Godzilla sinks a Russian submarine in the movie. Mm. And then a couple of years later, one of my favorite Godzilla movies, Godzilla vs. Biodante, has a whole, like, James Bond spy subplot that's total, oh. that always reminded me of your script. I so, have to check that out. So it's like, it always, it was kind of interesting to see these yeah. little seeds you had in this script now kind of, I'm not saying, you know, I just found, I just find that to be interesting. Or the, uh, the new movie, The Meg, and I haven't read, well, you read The Meg books, because I thought mm-hmm. the movie was interesting then reading this, and I was like, because in this, there's the scene where they go down into the Russian sub, and they're like looking at, footage for they recorded on their camera that's right out of the movie yeah and that yeah. basically happens <laughs> here's what i'll say i, I mean 
if 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 I had a huge ego, I'd say, well, they just they they know a good idea when they see it. <laughs> I, I would say that they did definitely read the script. We know that because it was written in concert with with Toho in the sense that he, Steve wanted to vet everything with them as they went. Um, so they did read the script. And I think what they were thinking in their minds is we want this to appeal to an American audience. And American audiences must love Soviet submarines <laughs> with video playback. So they maybe, if they did steal it, that's why. Gotcha. I love the Russians. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's just kind of interesting that both films have that. So. Mm. Um, well, maybe we'll actually wrap it up there for listeners. Uh, we are going to have Fred on another episode talking Johnny Quest and a few other things. You should yeah. definitely check that out. And b- besides that, like definitely seek out this script because there's a sequence where Godzilla like uses a train to bat jets out of the sky, which is just <laughs> it's, a Bart, it's actually a Bart train. Yeah, which <laughs> is it's amazing. Like the yeah, please check out the script. The last thirty. The, the third act of this script is phenomenal. Even a scene where people are in a theater watching Friday Thirteenth three D, <laughs> and, and then um, Godzilla oh, yeah, punches through the screen. Or something. Yeah, yes. it's so... well, somebody complains about the quality. Yeah. Like, this three D sucks, and then <laughs> yeah, because giant like, arm comes cause, through. Because like how Fred's describing William Goldman, like this script is written so well, the opening immediately grabs you. It, it's a it's a fun read. It's James Bond with Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And where do we recommend people look for scripts online? Um, I think something like this, I think you could just uh, Google, Google it. Yeah, and and then with and PDF, and it, that's my <laughs> little secret. And I usually find a lot of see, hard scripts, copies so. turn up on eBay all the time too. Yeah. yeah, is it? Does it feel nice that people can like in some way the movie does exist because the script's out there? If anyone wants to find you, <laughs> no, no <it> <laughs> not as good. No. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Fred, so much for talking My about pleasure. Godzilla for Fun with to us. Go down memory lane. Um, you can follow Best Movies Never Made by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate us five stars. Subscribe today to make sure you automatically get every new episode when it's available. And while you're at it, subscribe to our sister podcast, The 430 Movie, in which a panel of filmmakers curate a fantasy theme week of classic movies every Friday and Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, available every Saturday night. And finally, a very special thanks to producers Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman, sound engineer Bill Ritter, and everyone here at Electric Surge Network for making this show possible. So this is Josh Miller and Stephen Scarlatta saying until next time, we won't see you at the movies. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.